Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk, make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So, what is astonishing you? What is astonishing me? Well, we remind ourselves uh, very, um, well, regularly uh, that we have this segment of the podcast as a way to um, engage in a spiritual discipline of being gratitude, uh, being in gratitude of, uh, of, of, of seeing God's hand, God's blessing in times that don't feel good mm-hmm. um, because we believe, we trust that even when those days, weeks, months don't feel good, that um, still God is good. God is good. And that all the time. All the time. All the time. God is good. And that... Uh, um, you know, in all things, God is working for good. Mm-hmm. Romans eight twenty eight. Not everything is good, but the scandal of the cross is that God brings goodness out of all things, yes. and that is an outrageous faith claim. It is, and it challenges you when you are in a season that doesn't feel good, and so since the pandemic, um, since the return to in-person worship, Dorada Church has really struggled with attendance and um, our finances. And um, about a year ago, I started praying about, you know, what God might have us do about that because I could I could begin to see that in this um, older congregation that we're it looked like we might be in this place for a while. And so I started praying about it. And one of the things that came to me was the idea of serving two congregations part-time. And that was not um, top of my list of things to do, but it wouldn't leave me. And so slowly I came to to the realization that maybe that was God's will. And so I just sat with it for a while and this past summer, well, the end of the summer, August or so, I introduced it to the elders, and they absolutely hated the idea. Yeah. Um, and, you know, bless them. Their primary concern was for me, right? This, you know, we, we, we're concerned that uh, this will be too much work for you, that you're going to burn out, and you'll quit, and it'll be over. And so, no, we don't like this idea. But over the summer, you know, financially, things got tighter and tighter. And so this past December, the elders, you know, came around to, well, maybe maybe we need to consider this. And this past Sunday, we had a congregational meeting, and I introduced the idea to the congregation. And same thing. Um, we really don't like this idea, but maybe, just maybe, God might be in this. And we had a long probably the longest congregational meeting I've had in my 26 years of ministry uh, to talk about this. And slowly the congregation began to say, well, maybe, maybe this is where God is leading us. And I'm astonished by the realization, the, the thinking in both me and the congregation, that what initially felt like almost like a punishment. <laughs> You're not doing it well, so now you have to do even more work. You're not doing it well, so you have fewer people and less money. 
uh, what's, what seems like judgment may actually be God's grace, yeah. may actually be a gift um, because we get to continue in ministry together. Serving two congregations will allow both congregations to free up some money, not to save for a rainy day, but to engage in mission. Yeah. To say, if God has called us to be in these locations, then let's let's truly let's truly do this. Let's let's be as faithful as we know how with what we have. And if that's where we land, and if that's the thinking going forward, then I can see this move, which will, you know, require. Let's be frank, more work <laughs> for me going back and forth between two churches. I can receive it as a gift and I can receive it as, oh, this is the goodness of God in a time that is tight and difficult and brings us more questions than answers. Yeah, I think that there's no part of me that is astonished by your faithfulness, but every part of me that thinks there needs to be like awe and just naming just the goodness of it and the and the model of it because for me um I know how long you've been discerning about this like maybe your congregation doesn't but I know because we've been talking about this for years <laughs> so I know how long you have been really just saying you know lord if this is your will then okay and if it's not okay if this is just my pragmatic good idea then let it pass but yes. if this is what you're calling me to you know and we all have these expectations as pastors of like well if you're quote good then you quote deserve a quote good church and so there's this sense of like you know th there's this real temptation to be like that isn't this can't be what you have for me, or this isn't what I deserve, or I'm, I'm better than this. And so I don't, I don't think that's, that's never what I've heard you say, but I also know like what it's like to be a pastor. Sure. And so like, there's just a wrestling with that. But I, I also just think it's worth naming that, you know, we have this idea in our head of a good church looks like X and it's crazy because if you look at the historical precedent of what it means to be a community of believers, it's much more normal to have a pastor who goes between different congregations than it is to have a pastor who is reserved in one space. And I'll look at like, say, I don't know, the Bible. <laughs> Paul is the pastor of many congregations and he moves between them, but he is the pastor. And I think obviously there are great, there's a great gift and blessing and just, goodness that comes from being able to be settled and focused in one place. But obviously the Holy Spirit is not limited by a pastor who moves between congregations. And again, if we can get out of our like middle-class colonial Western civilization expectations of what a good institution looks like, we, it doesn't take very long to see and perceive the ways in which in a really unexpected way, having the pastor be serving two congregations at the same time could be an unexpected source of vitality for a congregation to understand and really live out the truth, which is it's not our job to work in the world and then pay for this person to do ministry on our behalf. 
we, we are the church. And I think, you know, again, like we're, it's so hard for us to let go of all of our cultural expectations of what a good church looks like, what an impressive church looks like of like, oh, we wish it were what it used to be. And, and so to be able to say like, is this what I would have chosen? Maybe not. Is this something that I'm like, you know, it may, brings up feelings of excitement like, gosh, I won the lottery? No. But am I mature enough in Christ to be able to see that this is not a tragedy? This is not um, a betrayal? This is not a death sentence? It's none of those things, right? Like we signed on as every believer signs on to follow Jesus. And we don't, you know, there's not a contract that we sign that says in this situation, but not that situation. Although I think functionally, sometimes we, we act that way. So I just, I mean, your faithfulness in discerning this for a long period of time, your, you know, centering of the glory of God and having a mature understanding of like, look, we get to be faithful in hard things. And sometimes the hard things that feel like a, a you know, feel like a setback actually are the source of deepest blessings. And so there is just sort of a holy curiosity about like, I can see all the things that this ways that this could be hard, but I wonder what are the good things that I can't yet see. And, and um, I also just think you are so good as a pastor at just le letting people feel like you introduced this, idea to your to the session in August and people had big feelings about it because it's a big deal and to be able to just like let people feel let people grieve let people be angry at you <laughs> and have you know the emotional centeredness in Jesus to be able to say like I understand this is not personal it feels personal <laughs> but it's not personal I understand there's just a lot of collective grief and anxiety and fear here and I can respond to it and not react to it. And I think, you know, that's why you are such a good pastor. And again, I think it, I think it is the God's will to confuse the way the world wants us to categorize things. So to say people who have what the world calls good fortune, people that have power, people who have wealth, um, people who have influence, they're good, and people who don't have those things are bad. And to be able to say that's not actually, that's not true at all. And people who take the gospel seriously should know that that's not true at all. So I think one of the things that's really hard is that as a as believers in general is that we keep internalizing the world scorecard and then wondering like, well, if I'm really following Jesus, how come my life doesn't look good? And we have. Like, I'm not disparaging, but we have very talented professional Christians who do draw a line between their love for Jesus and their talent, which is sincere and God-given, and their material wealth. And so it reinforces this idea that, like, if you were really faithful, you'd have, you know, an, an industry or an empire. And that's just not true. And of all the people who have to know that it's not true, it has to be us as mature believers and shepherds who lead the flock to say, like, I am not ashamed to serve the Lord in any capacity that the Lord graces me to serve Jesus. And, 
you know, Paul is saying, like, I glory in my sufferings. Like, if I have the opportunity to endure a hardship to be part of the mission of the kingdom, like, that's an honor. And I think just, like, flipping that script, which is different than, like, I'm not saying that, like, there are systemic injustices at play here, and we all know it. And I'm not saying those are cute, because they're not. But also we follow Jesus in the midst of those things, especially in the midst of those things. Um, and those things that are fruits of the powers and principalities that are passing away, those things do not determine our life, our character, our commitment, or our joy. And so I just think, you know, it's just really, really beautiful. And I think one thing that you are modeling for your congregation and that your congregation is following you is that, look, in Christ, we do not receive the power to control our circumstances. What we receive in Christ is the Holy Spirit that gives us the grace and the power to control our response to our circumstances. And so it's just like, look, today I'm going to get up and I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to serve the Lord. And sometimes those days are going to feel like wins and sometimes those days are going to feel like losses. And honestly, I don't really have much control over that. What I do have control over is do I choose Jesus and the values of the kingdom today? And frankly, will I continue to choose Jesus and the values of the kingdom when it doesn't, quote, work out for me in, appear to work out for me in this life? And I, you know, the answer has to be yes. And, and so I just think it's really beautiful and worth naming that, that this is really glorious and we need to celebrate it. Well, here's the sweet irony of the situation. We've had more people on the church campus in the past six months than we have the past six years because we have partnered out of our prayer summits that we have annually. We have partnered with an organization that reaches out to uh, the, the homeless and those who are living in hotels, families who are living in hotels. We've partnered with them, actually moved them um, to our campus, and uh, we weekly, daily feed uh, people who are unhoused, people who are living in hotels, uh, their children are in our after-school program, their children are in our summer camp, and uh, so we, we have, we, we are building relationships with a population that, in terms of finances, doesn't have much to give us in return. Right, and, and I so, think, and yeah. So, you know, we, we are... <laughs> We, we are seeing these people come to the church and be a part of the ministry in some ways, but they're, they're not the, um, you know, so many of our churches want the middle-class family with 2.5 kids, and, you know, they have a certain amount because of disposable income, right. and, right, they can support financially the programs that are already there that exist for the members of the church. Right. Um, and we are building relationships with the population that, they and we love them we just we just know that they don't have um, um, those kinds of financial resources to give I mean, to the church and I think the reality is like we have to be able to say right now today in your church a tremendous um, like reformation has happened that if you say right now in your church people are coming and being fed and being welcomed and being, you know, children are being supported and, you know, all of the things that are happening, it, it, 
they are happening by the power and provision of God, not the power and provision of your community. And, and like right now, today, the kingdom of God is being made manifest on that campus. And I think it's really important, like when Jesus is saying like, you know, don't worry so much about tomorrow. Like it's hard to even see right. the goodness of what God is doing today because there's this real practical worry about how are we going to keep the lights on? And like, well, I don't know how. And the reality is at some point, none of us are going to be able to keep the lights on. But I think like I am so struck by how our need to be institutionally strong makes us spiritually weak. And there's just something about the capacity of us as like, I mean, to the extent that I think a lot of mainline churches have historically been for and by middle class Christians. Certainly that is writ large true about the Presbyterian church. It's not, you know, I mean, that's not universal, but it's writ large true. Like we, we have imagined, oh, here's how we can serve God with our wealth and with our power. And, and when we don't have those things, we throw up our hands and go like, well, how are we going to serve God now? Like, I think that we are, it's such a gift. I mean, this is what deliverance can look like just to be like, well, even though we don't have wealth and we don't have power, we can still serve God. And actually God doesn't want our wealth and our power. God works through our weakness. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, at to the extent that the church can move towards the margins and discover that, there, maybe that's the only place we can discover that that God is powerful and that nothing is impossible with God. And you know, the ch the idea that the church has always has started at the margins and has always been healthiest at the margins. And so, if we could let go of our need of like, well, we can't do this because it'll cut into our endowment, and we need our endowment to guarantee our perpetual future. Like, I like hand to God, I think it might be blasphemous to have an endowment. Like, why are we like, like deciding, like, how is it good stewardship to ignore the real needs of our brothers and sisters today in order to secure a hypothetical future that we prefer in perpetuity? Like, how, how, how does that live? Like, if we really believed that God was enough, we wouldn't do that. If we really trusted God to provide, we wouldn't do that. We would say what Calvin of all people said, which is if you have more than you need, you have what belongs to the poor, give it to them or you're stealing. I'm paraphrasing, but he said that. Yeah. And so I think that um, this idea of like being forced, pushed to the margins and you are not a white person, but you are serving a historically white church and being pushed as a person of power and privilege to the margins feels like death and its deliverance. Yes. And I know we're going to talk about this a little later in the podcast, but just suddenly I'm reminded of... Um, the Harvard president who recently resigned, uh, Claudine Gay. And it is challenging to be a person of color in a historically white institution because if something isn't going well, 
and there's criticism. You always have to ask, where the criticism is coming from. Because, as we say so often, the devil is good at, at his job, and there can be all kinds of subtle and not so subtle um, hints of racism, sexism, whatever. And in this congregation, I... I I do need to receive as a gift the willingness of the con because this is not the first historically white congregation that I've served. Yep. Um, and <laughs> it did not go well. I mean, other uh, congregations decided that you were the problem. Mm -hmm. And I have to give the Lord glory and thanks to the people that they are saying whatever happens we don't want you to go yeah you're our pastor yeah yeah which is pretty astonishing and it's beautiful yeah, I, I mean yeah. yeah no i i think that's really beautiful and it's i mean i just think that the reality is it's so hard and uncomfortable to focus our lives on the on the cosmic christ i mean like to see our lives in the context of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And and when you see your life in the context of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then the idea of like, okay, will you serve two congregations? I mean, it puts it in perspective, right? right. When when you see your life... I am the victim of nothing, right? Well, so don't cry for me, Argentina, I mean, because I'm serving two congregations, right? It's In the context of... Right, and I do think we are supposed to live our lives in the context of that story because it gives us perspective right expectations and, and hope right and i think when you when you view your life in the context of what you what the culture tells you you deserve or what the church was like 50 years ago the good parts of it or whatever like then it's really easy to 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 be you know um to think oh i i can't go on or i don't want to go on or there's no point to going on and i want to say you know it reminds me to the currently there's a lot of um there's a, there's a lot of talk, good talk, I think, around um, presidential candidate Nikki Haley, who's made some comments about, has asked about racism in America and has raised, America been a racist country? And her answer was no. And then her expanded answer was, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but growing up as, a, and these are her words, a little brown girl in South Carolina, if my parents had told me that there was racism, I would have felt defeated. And because they told me that America wasn't a racist country, I, you know, had the courage to believe in myself and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying blah, blah, blah dismissively. I just don't know the end of her quote. And I think, like, to be able to say I want to see things within the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it does not require saying, ignoring the powers and principalities of evil and the way that they shape us. What it does allow me to say is to say I see them, I name them, I acknowledge them, I resist them, but I don't fear them because I know the source of their overcoming. And so not it's not about saying like, well, none of this matters because Jesus is risen. It's about saying every single bit of this matters. And because Jesus is risen, I have hope in confronting really what it seems like an impossible, you know, and, and frankly useless fight 
which I think is, you know, the way that um, people saw the crucifixion of Jesus in real time. Like, what a waste. Like, you've done this for nothing. It won't make any difference. And I think we have to be a people who understand that and believe, and, and it's an audacious belief, it's a foolish belief, that Jesus' death on the cross did vanquish the powers and principalities of evil and that that power is still at work in the world and we are harnessing ourselves to that power of resisting and overcoming powers and principalities instead of compromising with them or 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 ceding territory or being angry like i you know i mean there's a righteous anger but anyway yeah, yeah. a couple of weeks ago um our did i tell you this our administrative assistant um placed on my desk um a magazine of the cover article was entitled um, when you're in the autumn of ministry and the article was about pastors who are over 55 or over 50 and uh, it says you are now in the autumn of your ministry and it's in that season uh, that many pastors get in trouble so, some kind of scandal or they mess up in some kind of way um, because they're asking well since I've been in ministry for so many years, so many decades, how come I'm not in the mega church? How come I don't have more power or more influence? And it's it's in that season that many just kind of just go downhill because you know that's the traditional midlife crisis time. And the, the article was about resisting the temptation to build something that the world says you have to have to be a legitimate church, legitimate mm -hmm. minister. And I, I, it, re it really spoke to me. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to be able to reframe, you know, or strip away everything that success is faithfulness, period, full success stop. Success is faithfulness. And um, I also want to say the idea that everyone over 50 is in the autumn of their ministry is a real set of assumptions to unpack right there. It assumes <laughs> that you started. It assumes that you started yeah. leading a church mm -hmm. in your 20s, mm -hmm. which for many of us was still far, far away. And so I think, I'm, I mean, I'm not 50, but I'm also not in the autumn of my <laughs> ministry. So so what is astonishing you? Um, well, we um, had, I think, a significant um, moment or we're, we're doing something significant in the life of our congregation that Ooh, la la I know what this is okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean and I just I want to put it in context like it's not I'm not saying it's heroic I just think that it is um I think it's significant and I'm I'm there's a part of me that just thinks in ways that might never um like logically track that it may be a catalyst for you know, really healthy transformation and spiritual fruit. So um, we have in our congregation a really beautiful, very colorful stained glass window. Um, I will say it, it looks like stained glass. It's actually a, a really um, smart and shrewd um, workaround for it. So it's kind of like colored I think it's perspec plastic. It's like layered plastics that's painted and then it has like actual metal pieces. So when you look at it, it looks like stained glass, but it's really, it really isn't. Um, and because the sanctuary, this, this church was built in over seasons 
um, the, the space that we worship in the sanctuary was built first and it was people worshiped in it from the beginning. Um, but even before they had pews in it, like, like the kids used to come in and roller skate in it in the night. I mean, it's really interesting. Um, and actually in, in the office, in the main church office, there's a framed architectural drawing of a sanctuary that the church intended to build, but never built. So it's really interesting. There's something I want to do at some point about how like we frame our, our dreams that anyway, but like the church never built it. But so this was built and it was always, or I think it was initially designed conceived that it would be the temporary sanctuary and that as the church grew another sanctuary that was completely dedicated for worship that would have a steeple would be added and this would transition to another kind of op- open space anyway but it but it's always designed to be a long-term sanctuary like pews bolted into the ground and when it was designed it was oriented the other way than we have it and so this stained glass window and the main entrance of the church are actually in the front of the sanctuary. Um, so the stained glass window and the main entrance to the sanctuary were designed. Initially, they conceived that that would be at the back. Like it's traditional that your main entrance, you come in at the back. And at the Grove, surprise, <laughs> when you, you walk, you walk into in, church, everybody's looking at I you. I mean, like everyone is oriented towards you. You are right up at the front, which I actually love, like theologically, like just the church is literally oriented towards people coming in and just this opportunity that is a nightmare i know it's hard although it does it does give us an opportunity as a congregation to really like like, welcome people i mean i sit in the front row and people like open the door and they're like "Ah," and they leave and i get up and walk out and i'm like oh no no come on in it's fine so but it's awkward but like so is following jesus anyway so this window um was designed to be at the back. It is now at the front. So it's, it is, so our worship is centered on the person of Jesus, which is beautiful. And it's Jesus and he's holding like a lamb in his arms and he has one hand up like the stop, like, and so I, we do um, like children's like music classes and VBS and all kinds of stuff. Like we clear out that platform and, we're always doing song circles and like telling stories and singing songs with children. And they're, they're fascinated by this window because it's really brightly colored. It has this like rainbow around the back of him. And, um, and the kids are always fascinated by it. And I always tell them that like the name of the lamb is a secret. I don't want to whisper it to them. And that like Jesus is holding the lamb and has his hands up and he's like, you know, cradling the lamb and also protecting the lamb being like back off this is my lamb and I say that you know the name of the lamb is a secret but I'll whisper it to you and then I whisper their own name in their ears and I'm like like, I really I love the window it's really beautiful um it was one of the first thing it's first thing anybody notices when they come in the sanctuary um and and I did not notice this the first time I saw it the Jesus pictured in that beautiful stained glass window is a white man like very fair skin, paler even than pale, pale me, um, like straight, <laughs> like light brown, like Caucasian texture hair, like narrow. Sort of he looks like a like the rendering of like Roman gods and Caesars and like classical, like Greco-Roman um, painting. And and I like complete transparency when I uh, when I first came into the congregation and for years when I served there even as a pastor who felt really called to lead a healthy and holy multi-ethnic church, I didn't look at that and go, I was just like, oh, that's Jesus. Because that is the dominant image of Jesus that exists in our culture. 
Um, and it took me years to be like, oh, what does it mean to be building and, and welcoming and like leaning into the eternal triumphant church by doing everything we can to welcome and participate in God's transforming the grove into a healthy and holy multi-ethnic church from a monocultural um, and mostly all white church into a healthy and holy multi-ethnic and multicultural church. What does it mean to have an image of white Jesus there knowing that, you know, on the one hand, as we were telling the kids on Sunday, like it's, it's okay. It's actually good to picture Jesus looking like you because that's one of the messages of the incarnation is that like God is with us and God is among us and God is not like God is approachable. And so, you know, to, to picture your own humanity on the body of Christ is not evil. It's not bad. And that's why we have lovely and really holy images of Jesus as a black man, as an Asian man, as a native American man, you know, all the different visions of humanity. Like that is great to imagine Jesus in that way to, to allow the Holy spirit through that, through your imagination to show you the withness of God but also, Jesus is not our imagination. Like, Jesus was a real person. That is the incarnation. And Jesus isn't, wasn't born in all places and at all times. Christ was made flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, who was a Palestinian Jewish man. And to be a multi-ethnic congregation that has chosen a central image of Jesus that reflects the ethnicities of some, but not all of the congregation, and is not a historically accurate vision of Jesus, like it's, it's, it's significant. Um, and for years I've been sort of joking about like bringing an expo marker in there and just like darkening Jesus's skin, but also just, you know, afraid to have the conversation because I know how beautiful the window is. I know what it means to people and I know, you know, just, the discomfort, like I just, whatever, I'm a person and I suck sometimes. <laughs> I get afraid. And I know I can imagine certain people in the congregation, like imagine, so I might be wrong, like how much that might hurt their feelings, like how much that might feel a rejection that they might internalize that as a rejection of their embodied presence in the community. But anyway, we have a, a newer member of the community who is um, um, really um, gifted in theology and art specifically. And he came to me and was like, Hey, I, you know, we would make a gift to the congregation to hire an artist to help transform this window into a more historically accurate vision of who Jesus was. And so, um, we took that proposal to the session last week on Tuesday and, um, it was actually one of the most straightforward and least interesting conversations we've ever had around the session table. People are just like, yeah, like God has given us the means, God has given us a way we need to do this. And like, we'll be mindful of, you know, we want to have a conversation. We want to encourage people to share how they're feeling. Like, it, you know, as you are wise about to say, people are allowed to feel. <laughs> and so, you know, really tell people it's, it's okay to feel any way that you feel about this, but also it's important, um, for many reasons, one is 
when when our children and young people and heck our adults when we see a person of middle eastern descent the culture tells us that that looks like a terrorist and we should look at someone and go oh that person looks like jesus that person looks like the mother of jesus that person looks like jesus and that and to be able to say i don't need jesus to look like me in order to love jesus and i don't need jesus to look like me in order to know that i belong to jesus right that part of the scandal of the incarnation is that Jesus was born into a particular community or tribe to be for all people. And, and my understanding of the chosenness of the biblical nation of Israel is that, that they are the ones who understood the fullness of the covenant of Abraham, that the nation of Israel was chosen so that all nations would be blessed, so that all nations would be restored into the wholeness of God's shalom covenant in response to the fall. And so the chosen people are the ones who know that all are chosen. And so we can revel in our particularity and in our own spe specificity uh, as humans. And we can also look at humans who have some things like us and some things unlike us and still see, you know, mother, father, sister, brother, sibling, friend. And so we can worship Jesus in his actuality. And so um, we introduced that you know, we share that with the congregation on Sunday in, our, in the context of our conversation about how risk is one of our core values as a community in the context of sharing the story of Jesus overturning tables in the temple to say, like, we're all about, it's very natural for us to think, like, God's biggest problem is other people <laughs> and to be, like, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem in, um, in the Synoptic Gospels, he, he enters in and goes straight to the temple because that's, and for us as people of faith, again, the world says churches in general have no power and stupid little petty churches like yours have zero power and importance. But to say like when we understand that Jesus is the hope of the world and that in Jesus the world is being transformed, the cosmos is being transformed. So we understand the importance of clearly discerning who Jesus is. Um, and so, yeah, I just am astonished <laughs> that um, – the Lord is bringing people into this congregation who understand and long for this, that there's deep love and tenderness towards the, the folks for whom this might be hard and not a spirit of judgment, that there's deep respect and honor for the people whose faith built this congregation that we have inherited. Um, this talk on Sunday, we had a talk back and people were like, we need to like take a picture of the window as it is and like frame it and center it and tell the story of we're not, we're not burying this history. Like we want to tell the truth of like, this is how we used to know Jesus. And this is what is good and holy about it. And this is what the Lord has shown us and how we've embraced God leading us deeper. Um, because, you know, we're, there's, there's always something to celebrate in, in growing and in risking. And um, so it's, it's just a, um, a really beautiful thing. And I think, you know, in the context of our earlier conversation about just transformation, like, again, we live in a microwave culture. And so we think if something hasn't been done in two years, it'll never be done. And I just like to say, like, I've been the just blessed <laughs> pastor of the Grove, the temporary pastor of the Grove for 15 years. And like, uh, we couldn't have had this conversation five years ago, or like it wasn't, I mean, I mean, maybe we should have, but we didn't, right? It just would have been a lot different. And so I think to be able to say like, just because a thing isn't happening now, doesn't mean it will never happen. And and 
you know, I think God, I think God delights in working past the point where all human hope is gone, right? Like Jesus shows up at Lazarus's tomb, not day three, but day four, right? Like this idea of, and, and I think, you know, resurrection and new life and, you know, and hope for the dead and dying, like that's the center, the center of the revelation of Jesus. And so I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that the Lord anchored me at the Grove and sustained me at the Grove. And like, definitely there was a season of life and ministry at the Grove where I was serving at the Grove and in another place. Like, I just think that for us as pastors in this generation where the church is leaving Christendom (laughs) and all of its twisted expectations, which I think can't happen fast enough. um, I think we ought to, as pastors have an expectation that like, yeah, there's nothing shameful about being a tent maker there's nothing shameful about having a bivocational call. There's nothing scary or, you know, that that's just what faithfulness looks like. And it is what faithfulness has looked like in the majority of the history of the church and in the majority of the places in the world. Recently here in America, it has not looked like that in some places. And I would argue that in some of those churches where it didn't look like that, there were significant gospel compromises being made sure. to make that ability happen. So, Yeah, I have three responses, uh, two historical, one biblical. Um, historical, number one. Um, I'm just reminded that before there was Michelangelo, before there was El Greco, before there was a Rembrandt, there was the iconography of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And if you look at those icons and that artwork, the biblical scenes painted and illustrated, they looked like East African people of Mm -hmm. Ethiopia. And so this is not new Mm -hmm. in that sense. Um, But the church in the West, our, our Christian memory doesn't go back that far um, often enough. Uh, And so, again, uh, this isn't new. Two, in terms of the Bible, uh, this wonderful uh, professor at Bethel College, um, uh, the late William Ramsey, and I remember one one day in um, an Old Testament class, we read that passage from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has the vision of God in God's glory, mm-hmm. a wheel in a wheel in the eyes. And um, I remember as Dr. Uh, Ramsey read that passage, he just took a piece of chalk. Uh, this was you know, yeah. back in the day. And he just drew what he read. Mm-hmm. And like, just rough drawing. And then after reading the passage and drawing, you know, wheel in a wheel in the eyes and, he's, and the, you know, clouds, he stood back and he said, ha, this is what God looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, then, when you go to the book of Revelation, yep. it's the first or second chapter. It's the first chapter, yeah, 14 where, and 15. Where where John says uh, that he sees Jesus in his resurrected glory, and Jesus has hair like wool. White wool. And, and feet like brass. Burnished brass. Right? And so, um, yeah, um, like whenever I read that, it's hard for me not to 
picture someone like my dad yeah. who has white, woolly hair. And if you look at any African-American's feet, right, uh, you know, John says, like, Jesus' feet was like burning brass, which means um, um, it's darker on the top, bright on the bottom. Um, and uh, it's like, yeah, okay. So there, there are many who say, yeah, Jesus is, um, or, or John is describing here a person of color. And mm-hmm. so often when we read the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation, we miss the extraordinary tapestry of ethnicities. Right? Right. We, we, we kind of skip over the, you know, the Amalekites and the Canaanites and all that, and we say, oh, those are just hard names. It's just, but those those are people groups. Those are yeah. ethnicities. And we we when when Moses marries an Ethiopian woman, we we just kind of gloss over that. We um, when in 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 the New Testament, when um, the the church in Antioch is described in the Book of Acts. Um, uh, Book of Acts clearly says that there were Africans and Greeks and Arabs and Jews all in this one right. church. And we miss that so often as we read the text. Well, and I think we've been taught not to see it because in as American Christians, we ha- swim in water that tells us like, oh, America is the new Israel. America is the city on the hill. Like almost like there's been this Christian reset and that the church didn't really start until it restarted, quote, in America. And I I also, you know, I think it's really interesting. We had a talk back on Sunday after service just so people could share what they were thinking. And it was really interesting because two people in the congregation who were probably, I don't know, late 50s, early 60s, um, one white man, one black woman, and they both talked about growing up and reading their grandmother's Bibles like sitting on the front porch, reading the Bible with their grandmothers as children. And that in their grandmother's Bibles, there were pictures and Jesus was a Palestinian Arabic person. Hmm. And so they were saying like, it's interesting to me. Like I, I feel like in my lifetime, I have seen the transition from like, like Brown Jesus to white Jesus. And what's up with that. And we're sitting there with a um, professor of, like worship and the arts. And he was saying like, well, there's this particular image that was mass produced and really captured everyone's the garden of Gethsemane image. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe he said the name of the artist, so I don't know what, but, um, but he was saying it's sort of like mass produced our, our understanding, but also just this idea of like, look, you can't have, you can't lynch somebody if you think that person looks like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like there's a real, I mean, again, the devil's good at his job. If you if you read Ibram Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning, like one of the major what people needed in order to justify the economic system of chattel slavery was a theological rationale, a way of reading scripture to say this is okay. Don't believe your eyes. <laughs> Don't believe your hearts. This is God's will. And that's contingent on understanding the white race as superior to other races. And if there is one race that is superior, then Jesus has to have been born into that one race or else the words of Jesus are going to make you question everything as they were intended to do. Right. So, again, I don't think that people who have grown up loving 
a particular image of Jesus, a particular image of white Jesus. Like that's not blasphemy. Like the Lord moves through brokenness and fallenness to find us and love us. And so if you cherish an image of Jesus where Jesus is white, that's really okay. You don't have to hate it. And you're not responsible for the ways in which the powers and principalities might have sought to co-opt the power of God for their own good. But it's important to be able to understand like that Jesus was a real person. That's the key um, revelation of our faith. And he had an actual body and it may not have looked like this image that I cherish that makes me feel close to Jesus. And can I just sit with whatever feelings that brings up in me? And can I ask the Lord to meet me in those feelings? And can I trust that the Lord will minister to me, you know, in, in, if there is discomfort, that the Lord will minister to me in that discomfort. And then actually it's a, the truth is always a blessing. The truth is always a blessing. Learning the truth about God is never a loss. And so if we come to see that some cherished part of our Christian experience isn't true, A, we know that the experience with God can be true, even if the understanding was limited. And B, that if God is leading us into a deeper and fuller truth, it's because God loves us and wants to bless us there. It's not so that we'll find out that we don't belong or, or yeah. Yeah, I have to say that my own um, spiritual life, my own thinking, my own relating to God and to people is really challenged by images. Personally, um, I do not like images of biblical people. I don't yeah. like it in glass. I don't like it in paintings. I don't like it in print. Um, you know, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, but I, I think many of those words say things that are not true biblically and theologically, and we don't see it often. And so mm-hmm. I much more prefer in imagery Christian symbols. Um, I, I, for me, it is highly problematic. I, like, I'm, I struggle with have no graven images of me. Like, I, I, I struggle with that, and I get, and I, I don't think pictures of Jesus are blasphemous. Let me say that, um, because. The God of heaven chose to become incarnate yes, as a Jesus human being. Jesus is the image of God. Yes. You're such a good Calvinist, right? It was so interesting <laughs> that we were talking on Sunday again. The, the person who was there who's a worship and arts professor was saying, like, look, the church has always toggled and back and forth between these two poles. One is iconophilia, like the love of images. And, and you know, you think about people who were illiterate and the way that images opened up and allowed people to know the stories and read the stories and the ways that images of biblical stories challenged the like Gnostic, all flesh is bad and this world is whatever. And then iconoclasm, like the idea that we need to just, which is so Calvin, so Puritan, like we need to destroy all these images because they're all blasphemous and limited and like being able to just move between those two poles. Because I do think, I also struggle with images of a real person, Jesus, 
And part of that I think is healthy. And part of that I think is I like, I struggle with images of Jesus as a real human and the people around Jesus as real humans because it requires me to move beyond abstract theory, Mm -hmm. uh, beyond my head and into my flesh. And it changes the way it just challenges me, right? Like some of it is like, this is a limited image, but some of it is, it, it makes me see how compartmentalized my faith is and how limited my reverence for the sanctity of flesh, my own and other people's is. So, um, I got, I, I remember when I was, you get uh, the last word. Okay. I was in seminary in Louisville and, um, there are, what, about five historically African-American Roman Catholic churches that are sizable in, in the city. And I grew up in Memphis, and it was uh, – I didn't know there was such a thing as an African-American Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, in, in the 90s, um, I don't know if it's true now, but most of those churches would be open all day. You could just go in and pray. And so I would, and, and I knew all four, and, and there were two that were particularly close to where I was living, uh, especially after I left uh, seminary um, near my apartment. And I would just go and spend time praying in those sanctuaries. And there were times when I was bothered by statues of saints. I was just bothered. And then there were times I thought, oh, cloud of witnesses i get it right mm-hmm. and it just it, it it's a struggle for me it's well and you were saying before that in those historically black congregations before we started recording is that so you were saying me that all the images of people were white is that correct well, no that was the um first church i ever served it was a presbyterian church after i was ordained i went to the small church in a small town historically african-american and um started by a uh, black pastor that came to North Carolina from New York, I believe. And uh, this church has very expensive and very large stained glass windows. And they are, uh, and, and, and the, the building is positioned just right so that when the sun is up, I mean, you turn the lights off in the sanctuary, it the room is lit up with these beautiful windows. And... They're not the kind of windows that are high up. Yeah. They are, you're, you're looking at these huge windows. They're, they're at eye level. And, um, but all the images are European. Mm-hmm. And that's very problematic. Um, Jesus, angels, apostles. Um, yeah, it, it's just problematic. And so, yeah, I struggled there. And when... Uh, it's the opposite of the grove. When you're preaching, those images are behind the people, but in front of the preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I struggled with those. Um, um, we need to wrap up. Yes, and we didn't get to. <laughs> we did not Gay. get to Claudine Gay. We we are going to talk about Claudine Gay because, um, bless, mm. like the whole American experience is being worked out in her life on her flesh and really historically just uh, hugely significant ways. And I, I don't say that with any lightness at all. And I really pray and believe um, that the Lord is just restoring 
everything to her in 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 ways that are beyond our imagination. So anyway, we'll talk about Claudine Gay at some point. <laughs> um, thank you all so much for listening this week. And if you want to find out more about what, that was such an awkward transition, but if no, you want to find good. out more good. about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian, you can go to the website, which is deridachurch.com. And you can also join them for worship at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. And you can check out Yolando's messages on worship on their YouTube channel or on their podcast, um, which is on the Podbean website. Um, look for the the dove over stained glass. Deride has beautiful stained glass of symbols. Of, of only, symbols. Only I know. Of symbols. It's, it's your jam. It's your place. <laughs> um, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out the um, worship service live streamed on Facebook or um, our uh, sermons on the Grove Church podcast and the Grove Church YouTube channel, The Grove Charlotte. Look for the the tree, the green tree. That's us. There's lots of groves out there. And you could worship um, at 10 a.m. on Sunday with us, where the dress code is wear clothes. clothes. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Bye.